Good morning. I had to bring my coffee. I'm coughing a little bit, so um, hopefully I'll be okay. All right. Well, we're still moving through the book of Acts. Don't worry, we are going to get to the end. It's only three weeks away, all right? So we'll get to the end of the book of Acts soon. Um, you'll recall that when I was last up here, uh, Paul had left Athens and he had headed to Syrian Antioch. I had a map up here for you. Remember that? We met Priscilla and Aquila. We met Apollos. And since then, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, has described Paul's movements in what is termed his third missionary journey. He goes to many of the same places he went in his second missionary journey. So just remember those places, Asia, that part of Turkey, Macedonia, the area sort of north of Greece, and Achaia, which is Greece and a little bit north of Greece. Eventually, he made his way back to Jerusalem. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing these events that occurred with Paul in Jerusalem. Just to review a couple of them, Paul used his Christian liberty, and although he didn't have to do this as a Christian, he submitted to the purification rites of the Jews so he could enter the temple. But he was accused of desecrating the temple. A crowd gathered, and they were starting to beat him. They were going to kill him. But he was rescued from them by the Roman soldiers that were guarding the city. They heard the hubbub, and they came on out. And as he was being taken to the Roman barracks, he asked permission to speak to the crowd, addressing them as brethren and fathers, which is kind of amazing. They were just about to kill him. And they were, there he was, addressing them as brethren and fathers. And when he was speaking and got to the part about being sent to the Gentiles, the riot started all over again. Um, then last week we saw Paul before the Sanhedrin, where he displayed, as Harrison said, his substance over against the Sanhedrin's style. Now, we didn't read the second part of chapter 23. We've kind of skipped from the first part of 23 now to 24, but let me briefly tell you that a plot was hatched to kill Paul. More than 40 Jewish people, men, bound themselves to an oath to, eat, to neither eat nor drink until Paul was dead. A relative of Paul heard of the plot, reported it to the uh, centurion commander, Claudius Lysias, <clears throat> Excuse me. And so Lysias sent, uh, sorry about that. Well, something came up on my computer. There we go. Oh, okay, sorry about that. Um, Lysias sent uh, Paul, this, friend, this relative of Paul reported it to the centurion command, commander, and Lysias sent Paul to Caesarea, where the governor was, uh, Felix was uh, residing. And he did this for Paul's protection. And boy, did he send some protection. This armed guard had 70 horsemen and 200 foot soldiers, so they could probably handle 40 people coming after Paul, and he does make it there safely. Now, I do have to tell you, I've kind of always wondered how long it took those 40 guys to eat and drink again, right? I mean, they made this threat. They weren't going to eat or drink until they killed Paul, and he got away. Um, there's a lesson in there making, about making rash promises. That's not really the lesson for today, but just take that one under consideration. Because um, the lessons that we're going to learn today are going to emerge as we see Paul talking to Felix. Now, before we move through our text and consider those applications, let me tell you a little bit about Felix. Short version, he was a sorry person. All right, longer version. He was a governor of Judea, the region that included Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Roughly, this was the area of the tribe of Judah. It was the southern kingdom. He was born as a slave. He became a freedman. We don't quite know who freed him. There's controversy among um, the historians of the day. 
Um, but he was freed, and somehow, after getting freed, he rises to power, and he's assigned as the governor or procurator of Judea. He's Gentile. Important point, he's Gentile. Because he's married to Drusilla, whom we just heard is Jewish. And not only is she Jewish, she's the daughter of Herod Agrippa I. Now, Herod Agrippa I is the Herod of Acts who imprisoned Peter and executed James. And next week, when Festus replaces Felix, we're going to see King Agrippa II and Bernice arrive on the scene. They are the brother and sister of Drusilla. I got really confused trying to figure all that out. You know, my last sermon, I had a ge- geography up there. I was going to bring a genealogy of it, but I was just looking, I was just over at this long corner of the genealogy, so I couldn't go all the way back. But if, if you have a question about it, uh, don't come see me today because I actually left the genealogy at home. But, you know, come, stop by and talk to me sometime. But back to Felix. He was brutal. According to one Roman historian, Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. And that same historian stated that he indulged in every license and excess, thinking that he could do any evil act with impunity. Now, during this time, there were numerous rebellions that were led by various Jewish zealots in the area, in in that region. And so according to some historians, Felix desired to quell these insurrections while he was a little brutal, um, actually led to peace. But other historians say he actually made it get worse because as he tried to suppress the rebellions, people reacted more. And there was one story in particular that I thought that indicated his cruelty and zeal to remain in power. Now the governor of Judea is the one who assigned or appointed the high priest. Felix's predecessor was a man named Cumanus, and according to the Jewish historian Josephus, 30,000 Jews died under Cumanus' reign uh, as the uh, procurator of um, the area. So Jonathan, the high priest, went to Rome and petitioned the emperor to remove Cumanus, which he did, and he replaced him with Felix. So what happens? Jonathan becomes unhappy with his choice and begins to campaign and become critical of Felix. So what happens? Felix has him murdered. Felix was a sorry person, all right? And now, with all that uplifting background, let's turn to our text and see what we can learn. And what we're going to learn about today is respect and witness. Now, Paul's been brought from, the, from Jerusalem to Caesarea for his own protection, Now, the Jewish leaders have come to Caesarea, and these include Ananias, you heard, the high priest, other elders, and a person who's named an attorney who's really an orator or a public speaker, Tertullus. And so Tertullus is their spokesperson. He starts with this praise for Felix. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have through through you attained much peace, and since for your providence reforms are being carried out by this nation... We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But I may not weary you any further. I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. Now, after all I've just said about Felix and his mode of governing, I mean, this introduction, come on, this is a bit overstated, if not uh, just excessive and servile. Um, But actually, it was the way that orators would start their speeches. It was called the Capitatio Benevolentiae. I practice that a lot. Capitatio benevolentiae, 
or the winning of goodwill. And so people would start their speeches to the public or to other um, leaders uh, this way. Paul does the same thing really down in verse 10, right? When the governor nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Notice the difference in his introduction, though. It's a bit more measured, and it's truthful. So he's not just laying it on. Tertullus then goes on to present three charges against Paul in verses 5 through 6. First of all, he's a troublemaker. The text actually says he was a plague. The, um, uh, some translations call it troublemakers. Some tra- call it um, pest. Our translation today calls him a public menace. Now you might think, why would this be such an important charge? We have lots of pests and troublemakers around us, don't we? <clears throat> well, back in that day, creating a civil disturbance was actually potentially a capital crime. So if they could get him accused of disturbing the peace, they might be able to get him executed. But secondly, and more importantly, Tertullus is trying to link Paul to those rebellious treasonous groups that Felix has been trying to suppress. Again, not a technique new for the Jews. Previously in Acts, we've seen Christians being accused of treason. If they can be convicted of treason, then the Romans will get rid of them. What a great deal. And this brings to mind something Harrison has said a couple of times in his teachings through the book of Acts, even said it last week, that in writing, that part of Luke's technique in writing Acts was to show how events in the lives of Paul and the other apostles mirrored the life of Jesus. What was written on the cross when Jesus was crucified? He was the king of the Jews. It was a treasonous accusation. Tertullus now accuses, next accuses Paul of being the ringleader of this sect of the Nazarenes. So not only is he connected with these groups, he's saying to Felix, he's the ringleader, he's the boss. Now this is the only time in the New Testament that the word Nazarenes, the plural, is used. Um, It would have been an expression of contempt by the Jews. Remember also mirroring what happened to Jesus. He had been declared a false messiah by the Jewish leadership because he was a Nazarene. So Tertullus then is trying to paint this picture of him, and he concludes these charges by stating that Paul tried to desecrate the temple. Now, that's an interesting charge. He tried to desecrate the temple. He doesn't say he did desecrate the temple. He just tried to. Now, why is this important? Because desecration of the temple was an offense for which the Romans had given the Jewish leaders the right of capital punishment. So if somebody was truly desecrating the temple, the Jews had the right to kill them. I don't think it counts if they were just trying to desecrate the temple. I'm not sure. It's not, couldn't find anything about that. But the, other, the real point here, though, is Paul is Jewish, and he's gone through the purification rites. In that sense, he couldn't even desecrate the temple if he was trying to at that point after the purification. The Asian Jews, though, are accusing him of bringing Gentiles into the temple. If that were true, it's not Paul who was desecrating the temple. It was the Gentiles who were desecrating the temple. So this charge really kind of just doesn't make sense. But Tertullus concludes that the Jews arrested him for this, and Lysias took him away with much force. Well, this true is hardly true. As we know from chapter 21, it was a mob scene. The mob was trying to kill Paul. There was no arrest of Paul by the Jewish leadership. And yes, it's true, Lysias did come out with a large force, but the text of chapter 21 says that when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
They backed off. Doesn't sound like it took much force to wrest Paul from their control. So an interesting set of charges. Now, after, these, after he lays out these charges, Felix allows Paul to make his defense, and after his introduction, Paul answers of these three charges, answers each of these three charges. In regard to being pastor or troublemaker, he says, neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. He was not a troublemaker. He was not creating the civil disturbance. The civil disturbance was actually occurred because of the people who falsely accused him. And regarding being a leader of the revolutionary cause, Paul admits he's a follower of the way, but by doing so, he states, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of all this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men. So yes, Paul says, I'm a follower of this sect called the way. That's true. But by doing so, I'm actually being loyal to the God of the fathers, just as those who are accusing me are being loyal to the God of the Father. They think they're trying to be loyal to the God of the fathers. And then regarding the desecration of the temple, he states he was in the temple presenting alms but he had been purified, as I said, and he didn't desecrate the temple. He even notes that none of those who accused him of that are even present for the trial. Now, Tertullus has presented his accusations with very little supporting evidence. Paul has refuted those accusations. It's pretty clear that Paul is innocent. Why doesn't Felix release him? Well, there's a hint in verse 26. He was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Among other possible reasons, Felix was hoping to enrich himself with a bribe. Perhaps he thought if Paul could bring alms to the temple, maybe he could bring alms to Felix. That would be great. Paul stays there for, in prison for two more years. He has some freedom, as it says. His friends can minister, him, minister to him. But we are told that Felix used to send for him quite often and converse with him. And one of those times is described in detail in verse 24 and 25. For some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. We'll come back to that shortly. Now, a lot of what we've been seeing in the book of Acts has been these various speeches and interactions of, very, of the early followers of Jesus with the surrounding culture and in various situations. Throughout Acts, we've seen various followers witnessing to the truth and reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and challenging people to follow Jesus. In short, they're presenting the gospel. Sometimes it's before large groups of people. Sometimes it's very small. Sometimes it is to those of Jewish heritage or those who have converted to Judaism. Sometimes it is those who are pagan and Gentile. And as we've been preaching through this, the whole preaching team, we have sometimes taken lessons for ourselves on how they approached others, and sometimes we have observed the content of what was said and how we can apply that to ourselves. And today we're going to actually do a little bit of both. Because in our passage today, we see Paul before Felix in two different contexts. The first is his defense before Felix and the presence of the Jewish leaders. The second is his more personal interaction 
with Felix and Drusilla. The first thing I want you to realize, and this has been said before, is the respect Paul displayed for others. This isn't new. Harrison observed it in a sermon last month. Paul was always respectful. Andy told us two weeks ago that Paul was always trying to build bridges. We see that in Paul's respect for Felix in his introduction. wasn't overstated, but he said he was happy to present his case before him. But Felix must have been struck by Paul's calmness and his respect because the accusations were groundless, but Paul was just calmly defending himself. I don't think I would have been that calm in that situation. And that respect and calmness that Paul displayed won him repeated opportunities to talk with Felix. Now, as I watch the wider church in our country interact with the culture around it, I don't always see respect for others. To use Andy's term, I don't see, sometimes, the church building bridges to the culture around it. It seems to me that I often hear followers of Jesus, not fortunately in this group, but it seems to me that I often hear followers of Jesus demanding their rights, and stridently so. And it's true, Paul demanded his rights as a Roman citizen back in chapter 22. As he was being stretched out to be lashed, he calmly asked the centurion, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is Roman and uncondemned? Again, calm, respectful. And it's true that as citizens of the United States, we have a right to exercise our religion, and we have freedom of thought. But so does everyone else. How all that gets done in a pluralistic society is awfully messy. It's very difficult. Certainly hasn't been completed, completely sorted out, and I don't think it ever will be. But one thing is true. We've been taught by Acts over and over again, and we're taught by Scripture repeatedly to be respectful of all of our fellow men and women, those of different colors, those of different genders, those of different belief systems, those who think about the world differently, they have different ultimates, and God knows, shockingly, even those with different politics. So let's lead our society and culture in respecting for others, as a church body and as individuals. And we are now entering another endless, grueling political season. Guard yourself from the cacophony, ill will, and hate that public discourse has often become and represents. And please don't contribute to that either. Because it is really in showing respect that you're going to build bridges. And you're going to get the occasion to do the thing that's most important that you're supposed to do as a follower of Jesus, which is not defend yourself, but to present the gospel to those who were lost. And that brings us to our second application today. Paul's discussion with Felix and Drusilla as a model of how to witness to others, on how to talk about faith in Jesus. Now, I suspect a lot of you know what I'm about to talk about, and it's just going to be a review. But I'm going to tell you it was a good review for me, so you get a good review today, too. Luke doesn't go into much detail, does he? Unlike other parts of Acts, there are no detailed words of Paul here. It simply says he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. This really is the right way to witness to others, and it's the right way to preach the gospel to ourselves. We should start with righteousness. Not our righteousness, of course, but God's righteousness. 
And then we can think about our unrighteousness. God exists, He is righteous and just, and He demands perfect righteousness of human beings, or there will be consequences. Let me say that again. He demands perfect righteousness of human beings, or there will be eternal consequences. You know, most people don't believe that. Certainly, I would say, virtually every non-believer doesn't believe it. But I'm not sure that all believers really understand that God demands perfection. No breaking of the law. No sin. So that makes sin a problem. Right? It's a big problem. It's the very biggest problem that faces a human being, and people don't want to admit that. So people go to great lengths to avoid it. They'll try to deny the existence of God in the first place. But then they end up with this tortuous process of trying to understand how we are here, why we are here, why it matters what we do to and with others, and all those other big questions in life. Frankly, it's just easier to believe in God than to try to come up with answers to origins and ethics as a non-believer. And they'll try to make God in their own image, which uh, unfortunately is something we as followers of Jesus, we kind of do that too, but they try to make God in their own image. The most obvious way they do this, and we do this, is they grade on the curve. They think they're pretty good. They compare themselves to others. At least I'm not as bad as that person over there. And they reason they're not so bad that God, they're not so bad, so God won't punishment. They think they'll be okay, but they're not okay. And deep down, they know it. They know that there's something wrong with the way they are and the way they are living. And of course, the solution to this crisis of righteousness is the perfection and righteousness of Jesus. And in the wisdom, plan, and justice of God, Jesus' righteousness is transferred to our account, and the punishment of our sin was exercised on Jesus. And therefore, God is, Romans 3.26, just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this is the love of God toward human beings. As it says in John 3.16, that he gave his only son to be punished on our behalf so that believers could have eternal life. So as we talk with others, we got to start with righteousness. And it's God's righteousness we have to start with. Now for Paul, in talking to Felix, next comes self-control. Now that's a really interesting choice, in my view. Um, I've already given you a description of Felix, practicing lust, cruelty, and evil with impunity. Maybe that's why Paul was emphasizing self-control. It doesn't sound like Felix had any. But I can't help but think that this is kind of a shorthand by the author of Luke. Sorry, by the author Luke, the author of Acts. Sorry. Recall Galatians 5, 23 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then my favorite phrase, against which there is no law. I love that last little. But self-control is the last on Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. Is Luke really using a shorthanded way of telling us that Paul described all these things that come to one who followed Jesus? Would Paul have talked only about self-control and leave out all the other fruits of the Spirit? We're not sure. But I think we too in our, spirit, in our witness to others should bear the fruits of the Spirit and talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Our witness should not end with simply encouraging someone to believe and perhaps guiding them in a prayer of belief, as important as that is. We should also be telling them what is the outcome of that belief. Yes, forgiveness of sins, but also real change 
in your life today. <clears throat> what change can they expect in themselves as they begin to follow Jesus? There's no better explanation than the fruit of the Spirit. And of course, if they choose not to follow Jesus, they won't enjoy that fruit. And you can just read Galatians 5, 19 through 21 to see what deeds of the flesh exist without the fruit of the Spirit. It's a nasty and brutal list. And finally, Paul turns to judgment. And we should not be shy in talking about judgment to come as we witness to others. Just as people don't want to think perfect righteousness is demanded, they also want to think there will be no final judgment. For those who follow Jesus, the time of final judgment will be a time of examination, but it will also be a joyful time of joining the Lamb, sorry, joining with Jesus and others of His at the wedding feast of the Lamb in the new heavens and the new earth. For those who don't choose to follow Jesus, there's also examination, and then there's punishment and despair. With all of this talk of righteousness, self-control, and judgment, Felix became frightened. No wonder. Doubtless he was convicted. Paul was helping him see the weight and consequence of his sin before the righteous, perfect God. Felix sent Paul away. And isn't that representative of what happens to us as we talk to people in our culture? People don't want to listen. We're sent away. People try to refute what we say to tell us we're wrong. People ridicule us, tell us we're foolish to believe such things. And so it will be when we witness to Jesus in our culture with respect. And that should be no surprise. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. He continues and says, the Jews were asking for a sign, the Gentiles searching for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now you might recall during my last sermon, I referenced back to a prior sermon that Harrison did. Harrison had given us this framework for talking to about Jesus. The framework was to listen to the people and the culture around you, affirm the people around you. Now, don't those two things sound like respect? Listen and affirm. And then to challenge the people around you. And he told us, that's the hard part. And that sounds like the witness we've seen today. And in my last sermon, I also gave you a challenge. I asked you to be ready to explain the hope that is within you. I ask you to take a few minutes that week to be prepared so you could write something brief so you could explain why and what you believe. I did that. I hope you did as well. Because today, in our culture, in our world, when you're challenged about your beliefs, will you argue about your rights or will you be ready to tell others about the hope you have within you? 